Well, again, a welcome to you, especially if you are visiting with us this morning. My name is Ashley. I'm the pastor here at Grace Community Church, and it has been uh, a privilege and, and a wonderful time already to, to be led in worship with by our, our children's choir, and we're so thankful for all the hard work that has gone into uh, that moment. And we love our kids at this church. We are thankful when you bring your kids into this sanctuary for worship. We believe that that is exactly where they belong, with God's people. They are a part of us. And so we look forward to that. And, and by the way, kids, at the end of the service, feel free to come up and, and grab a, a palm branch out of the jar here. Don't, don't take the vase. Um, and then on the way home, while your, your dad is driving, like reach out with that palm branch and just give his ear a little tickle. Um, don't do that. I make ju- like, I probably shouldn't say things like that. <laughs> Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. We'll start in verse uh, 28. Uh, If you don't have your Bible with you, you can find our passage on page 12 of your worship guide. It is, of course, Palm Sunday. There's actually no mention of palms in Luke's account of the triumphal entry. But just, you know, other gospels talk about palms, so it's still Palm Sunday Uh, whether Luke talks about it or not. But let's look and read Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away went, so those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, the owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace, heaven, and glory. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you. And hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do 
for all the people were hanging on his words. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, may the truth be spoken and received here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, one of my, one of my heroes and my favorite authors, and just to me, one man who is a, a spiritual giant is a man named or was a man named Henry Nouwen. Um, and he was uh, a Catholic priest. I believe he was, he was Danish. And, and not only was he was a wonderful writer, and two of his books that really impacted me a lot is one called In the Name of Jesus, and the other is uh, The Return of the Prodigal Son. But not only was he a great writer and wrote books that really communicated to me, um, he, he was a very transparent struggler in the faith. And frequently in his writing, Henry Nouwen writes about community. And community is a very important theme and an important thing in his life and his writing in particular, his struggles with his own longing and deep desire to have rich, real, transparent, authentic relationships Really what Henry Nouwen wants more than anything else is to be known, known and loved. And he spent his last years ministering to those with profound disabilities at La Arche Daybreak Community in Ontario, uh, Canada. And it was there, within that community, that he really began to discover what he had always longed for, this sense of belonging, this real sense of community among those who were so broken and didn't bother to hide it, couldn't hide it. I've always got a a keen sense of Jesus from the writing of Henry Nouwen. And that that it's really Jesus that's shining through his, his, the, the simplified, not simple, but the simplified love of those at the large daybreak community that he served. And, and maybe that made clear to him and clarified the, the love of Jesus for Henry Nouwen. And I think what he discovers and what he points us to is that Jesus truly is the yes to everything that now and long for the the yes to everything that we long for as those who walk stumbling and stuttering and falling and getting back up and repenting and repenting to one another repenting to God he's the he's the yes to all that we long for and that we are called to respond to his yes with a yes of our own that yes of heaven, we respond with the yes of our own. And, and here, Henry Nouwen writes, Jesus went to Jerusalem to announce the good news to people of that city. And, and Jesus knew that he was going to put a choice before them. Will you be my disciple or will you be my executioner? There is no middle ground here. Jesus went to Jerusalem to put people in a situation where they had to say yes or no. Jesus comes to his people as the fulfillment of all of God's promises. 
the fulfillment of all the covenant promises of God to his people. Jesus is the yes and amen to, to all of those. And, and as we, we look in the Old Testament, we see these three offices that God's people, that, that, that these means by which God ruled and led his people in the Old Testament. And it's something we talk uh, about here uh, uh, quite a bit, but it's the offices of prophet, priest, and king. The prophets were the deliverers of God's words to his people. The priests were the mediators between God and his people, the administrators of purity and worship and sacrifice among God's people. The king rules and protects God's people and the kingdom, right? And sometimes we see in the Old Testament, all three of these offices are fulfilled in one figure. Uh, Moses is one of those examples. King David is another one of those examples. But as you might imagine... The ultimate fulfillment of all three of those offices of prophet, priest, and king are in Christ Jesus himself. He is the perfect prophet, the perfect priest, the perfect king of his people. And we see that in his passage, in this passage. So that's, that kind of becomes our three points this morning. Jesus the prophet, Jesus the priest, Jesus the king. And, and we're going to, it's going to warn you, we're going to skip around a little bit as we walk through this. We're going to, so... Let's look at Jesus the prophet, first of all. As God's people, there are really two ways in which we know God's will. One of the, one of the ways that we know God's will is just based on the things that happen in the world. We believe that God is sovereign over all history, and there is not an errant molecule in the galaxy, right? Right? And we call this, uh, in theological terms, we call this his works of providence. God's works of providence whatsoever comes to pass, right? His works of providence, providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing of all his creatures and all their actions, right? So that's one way that we know what God's will is based on the stuff that happens. The other way that we know what God's will is, is through his word, what he has said to us in the Bible. And the office of prophet in the Old Testament was one whose job it was to communicate God's words to God's people. And so as we look at Jesus, the prophet, let's look at this in two ways. So here you go, a couple sub points for you if you're, if you're keeping up on your scorecard, right? As prophet, Jesus is the revealer of God's will. But also as prophet, Jesus is the revelation of God's will. Let's first, let's look at, at Jesus as the revealer of God's will. Jesus is, is exercising the office of prophet in several different ways in, in this passage here. First, he reveals all of this information that we wouldn't have access to otherwise. He reveals where and how the disciples were to procure his ride, this donkey, this colt, upon which no one has sat. And in verse 30, he gives them the details. He says, go into the village in front of you, and you are going to find uh, a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. And 32 says, so those who were, went, sent, those who were sent went away and found it, just as he had told them. So that's one way. 
Then, a little bit later on, he reveals this somewhat disturbing, not somewhat, pretty disturbing uh, revelation about what's going to happen to the city of Jerusalem that eventually does take place in 70 AD in verses 43 and 44. He says of Jerusalem, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. So then he reveals this information about what's going to happen in Jerusalem in the future. And then finally, uh, he cleanses the temple and calls God's people back to their true mission in verses 45 through 47. He enters the temple and begins to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And so what had happened was the temple has these courtyards, a system of courtyards, and the closer into the temple you got, the more holy those places became, but the outer courtyard was known as the court of the Gentiles. And that is where this great marketplace had been set up, buying and selling and changing money and for the purpose of the sacrifices. And this was the busiest time of the year. Um, But that court of the Gentiles was specifically designed as the place as close as a Gentile could get to the presence of God on earth. And so what Jesus was doing was, or what was happening there was, was the place where Gentiles could worship God was turned into a sale auction for livestock. Sometimes the work of a prophet isn't in saying or revealing something new. But sometimes the work of a prophet has to do with calling God's people to live according to the truth. And so what is happening here basically is that Jesus is taking the hidden will of God and he is making it known for the purposes of glorifying God. There's grace. (laughs) There's grace all over this. This is why Christ came. He came to proclaim the kingdom. He came to proclaim himself to be the ultimate revelation of God's grace and mercy. And his work as a prophet is to demonstrate his own identity as the Messiah. Because as the Messiah, Jesus is not only the revealer of God's will, but he is also the revelation of God's will. At the end of Luke chapter 9, it tells us that Jesus set his face like a flint towards Jerusalem. In other words, he, he knew where he was going and he knew what that meant to go to Jerusalem. He knew what was awaiting him there. And yet he was determined to be on this mission to save his people. And the donkey that he procured is, is the means by which he will finish that journey in fulfillment of prophecy. And we'll talk about that in just a little bit, but that journey will ultimately end not with the adoration of the people, but with them calling out for him to be crucified. And Jesus mourns for Jerusalem because they're missing the true Christ who is among them. 
He mourns not only for the physical destruction of the city and the people within it. I think it's horrifying that he says, they will tear you down, you and your children. Isn't that like a parental nightmare? But he mourns not only for the physical destruction of Jerusalem, but for the spiritual destruction that the people are headed towards. In verse 42 Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. What are the things that make for peace that they're missing? It's Jesus. It's Jesus himself. He himself is the holy presence of God among the people. And that's why he's so zealous for the temple, because it is the place of worship for all. And a place specifically set aside for those who are outside the covenant of people to come in and find a covenant faithful God. And Jesus is the answer to all of that. He is the yes to all of that. He is the one by whom all of these will be saved. He is the one by whom the ultimate peace will be made in his broken body and shed blood between a holy God and a sinful man. And therefore we need Jesus not only as prophet, but as priest as well. The priest stands between a holy God and sinful man. He is, he is that mediator. I am not called a priest. I am not a priest because I would be a very poor mediator between you and God, right? Also, because I don't need to be that mediator. I don't need to stand between a holy God and you because you already have one and he is far better than any job that I could do in that respect. He is, in fact, the best possible candidate for that job. Jesus. Jesus is the priest offering the sacrifices that his people's sins demand. And he is the sacrifice. So when he stands before God on your behalf, he does so based on his own broken body and shed blood. No other priest does that in any religion. So let's look at this in two ways. Jesus is received as priest and then Jesus is rejected as priest. It's not all rejection, although there's, there's a lot of it in here. Um, but Jesus is genuinely received by some as the high priest. It, and it's, it's hard, if not impossible, to know which ones among the crowd are sincere in their worship. And, and certainly, as we look in, in verses 35 through 38, the disciples there are, are part of God's people. But, but there are many in the temple as well. And there, it is told that, that many, that they, the, one of the reasons that Jesus was sort of protected in the temple is because all of the people were listening to him. And that, is, that has been the case from day one with Jesus, that he's had many that, that listened to his words. How many accepted and walked and believed in those words, we don't know exactly. But it says they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. So there's a lot of reception here, but there's also a lot of rejection. Jesus weeps for Jerusalem because he knows that no matter what the crowds are shouting in verse 38, 
that the people are missing the true significance of his arrival in the city, that, that the Messiah has arrived and he will save his people from their greatest enemy, sin and death. He weeps because he, he knows that this, the destruction to come on Jerusalem will be made worse because of the hopelessness of a life lived apart from knowing him. And then Jesus the priest enters the temple and he restores it. He restores it to its proper function that, that in so doing, he is doing an intercessory work on behalf of the Gentiles whose section of the temple had been occupied. And, and as he does this, he angers the religious leaders and becomes part of why they wanted to kill him. And, and it says, and he was teaching in the temple and the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. That Jesus is interceding uh, as the true priest, Jesus was interrupting their cash flow, right? But the religious leaders had already rejected their Messiah. And when others were worshiping Jesus as he enters the city, verse 39 they say to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. They're worshiping you. They, don't, they shouldn't be doing that. You need, to, you need to stop them. But Jesus won't be denied the worship that is due him. The king gets his way. And Jesus is the king. Let's look at, at Jesus the king. Traditionally, as we come to Palm Sunday, uh, the beginning of Holy Week, that's the emphasis that we place on this day, is the kingship of Jesus. And Jesus shows us he is king in a big way in this text. But he's not the king that we expect. And, and in a lot of ways, like the judges, although in the totally opposite way, Jesus isn't what we expect him to be. He's a humble king. He's a compassionate king. He's a worthy king. Let's look at Jesus, the humble king. Kings, kings ride war stallions. <laughs> they, don't ride, they don't ride donkeys. They ride war stallions and they bring the spoils of war with them. And, and as they enter the city, their hometown, they, they come in all of their pomp and glory with, with soldiers at their backs and, and riches uh, draping their chariots. Jesus comes riding on a donkey. Zechariah 9.9 9 is the prophecy that he's fulfilling here. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The king would come into the city with the spoils of war in his possession. Jesus comes with spoils of war for his people. In Zechariah 9, it says, he comes righteous and having salvation. That he has come to give and grace and bless his people with the very thing that they need. Not what they expect, but what they need. Not what they want, but what they need. Jesus provides as king. 
There's always been something a bit odd to me about the account of Jesus getting hold of this donkey. It almost seems like all of a sudden you know, he sends out the disciples to find this random donkey and he's like, go be donkey rustlers for, for a time. And, but not only that, just as we read in the Gospels, Jesus is always giving. He is always giving, always giving. He rarely ever even asks for anything. He is rarely ever given anything. And this is the only time I can think of where he takes something. But Jesus takes this donkey. And the reason that you give the owners of the animal is that the Lord has need of it. Jesus owns the donkey already. It's his donkey. He made the donkey. He's the king of the universe. It's all his. He is the creator. He doesn't even have a proper saddle, so the disciples throw their cloaks over its back, but they treat him as a king. Verse 36, as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road, and in doing so, they're saying, we'd rather your donkey walk on our clothes than on the bare uh, earth. But this isn't Jesus all of a sudden adopting some kingly heir, saying to, to the, the people that, you know, you know, this is, you know, he's not, he's not adopting some sort of arrogant posture of being better. This is actually a function of his humility. Jesus receives this not because he is suddenly wants to become a worldly king, but because he is humble. He is due so much more. In the new Jerusalem, in heaven, when it comes down and where Jesus is going to live forever, the streets have to be made out of gold in order to even come close to matching the glory of the king that sits on the throne. And here he is riding on a donkey, walking on the clothes of poor men who love him. Jesus is the humble king. He's the compassionate king. He's the king that weeps for Jerusalem. He is the king that longs to bring peace to all of Jerusalem. He longs for them to understand what his kingship really means. Instead of the short-sighted political lens with which they're, they're viewing it now. Because his kingship means peace. It means a finding of a relationship between a sinful person and a holy God whereby peace is forged outside of that sinful person that someone else provides what that relationship needs so that it can be healed permanently forever. That's what his kingship means. His kingship means the king dies for his subjects. Do you think he's worthy? Jesus is the worthy king. The king will be worshipped. Verse 40, he answered the Pharisees who were telling him to stop. Stop his disciples from worshipping him. He says, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. All creation is groaning awaiting the undoing of the curse. And here the king has come to undo the curse. And if his people do not worship him and proclaim him as king, as worthy, then the creation itself will do so. 
Palm Sunday is a mixture. It's a mixture of triumph and tragedy. Triumph at the arrival of Jesus in Jerusalem, the adoration and worship of the crowds of his followers, Luke says, the multitudes of his disciples. But we know how the week ends. It ends in the tragedy of the cross. We know that that's also not the end of the story. We know that, yes, Friday is coming, but Sunday is coming after that, the day of resurrection. And the ultimate triumph is that Jesus, the prophet, priest, and king, will be received by every one of his people. Everyone who belongs to him will find in him God's resounding yes. 2 Corinthians 1.20 For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Not one will be lost. In just a, a few minutes, we're going to have a Sunday school class, and, and I'm gonna, we're going to talk about the high priestly prayer in John 17. Uh, and we're going to talk about verse 12, but I want to mention it right here as we close. Jesus prays this of us. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost. There is hope. There is hope in this King Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank you for the hope that is ours in the Lord Jesus. We thank you that he is prophet, priest, and king. He is the one who stands between your righteous anger at our sin and offers himself as atonement. Lord, we thank you that each week we come to this table and we are reminded of the broken body and shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ which cries out for us on our behalf. And we pray, Lord, that as we come to this table this morning, we would be again met by you and reminded and nourished and strengthened and equipped to glorify you, that we would find in Christ Jesus our ultimate hope, not because we have done or could do anything to earn your favor, but because he has accomplished all that we need in his perfect life and in his atoning death. We pray that you would be glorified in us, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.